Great, through that door? Okay. Well, this morning we get to finish our series of questions, and to me, this question is kind of the ultimate question, because it's a question which I have interpreted broadly here. Uh, the question that was initially asked was specifically, there was one about Genesis 1 and 2 and reconciling those differences and in light of modern science and uh, I'll get to that, kind of. So if that's your specific question, sorry. But there are three questions I'm going to answer this morning, and I'll give you those in a minute. But first, I want you to raise your hand if you drove here this morning in a car or rode in a car. Keep your hand up. If you also have a cell phone and if you've ever been to a hospital, which is to say, have you been born Okay, so what I'm getting from this, just informal, not a very scientific survey, is that no one here is completely anti-science, because we rely on science for all of those things, and so we're not going to pick between the Bible and science this morning, but because we want to acknowledge that science is a gift from God. Discoveries have been made, technologies invented that enhance and extend life for millions of people, uh, the Western study of science began largely for theological reasons. And it was uh, in that day, I think, for the initial science degree, you had to first have a degree in theology, and then you could pursue a degree in science because they understood that one came from the other. And the basic thinking there is that we believe in a God who is logical and who is reasonable, and that he created the universe And therefore, the universe must be logical and reasonable because God is logical and reasonable. Thus, we can learn things about the world around us by using logic and reason. That's a pretty simple uh, step there. And so we're going to talk this morning about all of the things that science can give us, but we want to say while science can do many things, it cannot do everything. While it can answer many questions, it can't answer every question And so we don't want to unnecessarily pit uh, science and faith against one another. Uh, And so the first question I'm going to ask, and and science, the scientific inquiry process that most of us learn in elementary school, is founded on doubt. It's uh, this ability to ask questions, to push through things that seem certain or things that even seem uncertain and uh, and question it. And then, you know, the, the great example that I was always told from the 20th century was Albert Einstein, who spent the first half of his career coming up with one theory and spent the second half of his career trying to disprove that theory, just to prove how strong the theory was. And so that's the scientific doubt. And so the question, the first question we want to ask is, is doubt, is scientific doubt a bad thing? And this is where our scripture is going to come from this morning. But first... Uh, it's going to be John twenty twenty four to 29. I'm going to read it to you. It'll be on the screens. And I would ask that you join me in prayer. Father God, thank you this morning for uh, the questions that you've given us, the questions that you answer for us, and that you are a God who does not shy away from these questions. We pray now uh, that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit into uh, wisdom and knowledge and truth, and that you would uh, lead us to uh, conviction and find a way to apply this to our lives. We ask All this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Starting in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, 
was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you, uh, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this story of Thomas is one of the only stories we have of Thomas and the church for its 2000 year history has never been very kind to Thomas. There's a word, sometimes even his nickname. Does anybody know the word that goes in front of Thomas? Doubting. And that's uh, usually not meant as a compliment. There are even hymns that are uh, mocking uh, Thomas. But I don't think that's what the scripture is doing here. And oftentimes we're tempted to criticize Thomas because what does he want here? He wants scientific data. He says, I want to be able to see it. I want to be able to touch it. I want to be able to experience it in some way before I know that it's real. And we frequently forget that the other disciples did not believe the witnesses who came to them either. The women who saw Jesus resurrected came to the disciples and they said, oh, we're not going to believe that until we see it. And then they go tell Thomas about it. And Thomas is like, well, I don't know if I can believe a witness account of this. And now he's doubting Thomas. Now that's a little unfair. He had almost the same standard as everyone else. And then... When they do see Jesus and Jesus comes, now Thomas is right here to insist on a real resurrection because he says, you know, I don't want some uh, wishful thinking or morale boosting. What I want is a real, tangible, resurrected Savior. And if I see that, he will have my allegiance. I will follow him. And once he saw Jesus actually resurrected, his life changed and and. Uh, the story of Thomas, Jesus does not come in here and say, sorry, Thomas, you failed the test. I was really looking for a blind leap of faith and I'm sorry, you just didn't pass. In fact, uh, when Thomas does accept the truth, he celebrates more emphatically than any of the others saying, my Lord, my God, and recognizes Jesus's divinity, uh, which is something that uh, some of the other disciples are still even wrestling with, but once Thomas gets the evidence, he is ready to go and lives a remarkable life that ends in martyrdom. And so here's what I want you to, the, the question here is doubt a bad thing. That's question one that we're res- looking at here. And here's the mistake that we frequently make. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt is not the opposite of belief. Unbelief is the opposite of belief. Doubt is something that is perfectly natural. Doubt is something that happens when we want to believe something or learn at a deeper level. In fact, doubt is the only way that we go about learning things. How many of you ever went through an entire year of school without asking a question about the material you were being taught? If you did, you may not have learned it very well. Because asking questions and prodding and learning more and expressing that doubt is how we actually grow. That's how we actually learn. And so doubt 
in and of itself is not the opposite of belief. It's not the enemy of belief. And so we don't need to treat it like that. Now, the church has often been unkind to doubters, even though the church has been greatly served by doubters. You can go through everyone through church history, all the major names that would stick out to you, whether it's St. Augustine to Martin Luther to Martin Luther King Jr., are all people who doubted some aspect of what they were being told was Christian truth. And all three of those, and many more, appealed to the scriptures. They appealed to Jesus, and the church has been better off for it. And so it's only by expressing those doubts that the church has been given more biblical doctrine that we've been able to worship Jesus in truth and in spirit as he instructed. And so... If we'd never expressed doubt, if the church was a place where doubt was unwelcome and uh, we were unfriendly toward doubters, we would never grow as a church. And so doubt is in sense, and doubters are sometimes a gift of God to his church. And so that's the first question. Is doubt a bad thing? No, not necessarily. In fact, most of the time it's a good thing. And the second question is this. Now, this is the one that I think is most prominent in our culture. If you look up, you know, science and faith, and every time I see an article that has to do with this, the question that kind of underlies it all is, does studying science cause you to leave your faith? And I have, I have scientific data on this. So, <laughs> the answer is, it's complicated, but the answer is no. But in a 2009 Pew Research poll, they did a comparative study between the general public and those that are professional scientists, those who are researchers and in a scientific field. And they said, how many of you believe in God? The general public, 83% said, yes, we believe in God. In the scientific community, 33% said, yes, believe in God. Now that stat by itself doesn't sound great. There's a 50% chasm between the general public and the scientific community. However, the next question was, um, do you believe in God? And then the people who said, no, not a God necessarily, but a higher power of some kind, 12% of the general public, 18% of the scientific community. So more than 50% of the scientific community is open to uh, some type of belief. And then the general public uh, said, no, I don't believe in either a God or a higher power. 4% of the general public, 41% of the scientific community, and of the people who said they don't know, it's 1% of the general public, 7% of the scientific community. So that sounds like it's pretty hard to maintain your faith if you go into science, doesn't it? Can we admit that? That would be the appearance of these statistics. However, in another scientific study, uh, conducted by George Barna, he figured out the year in most people's lives when they established their worldview, their beliefs about God, religion, and the world, and politics. And what his data found is that someone who is 13 or 14 years old is pretty firmly set in what they believe about God, religion, politics, and the world. Their worldview, their outlook on the world is pretty set by age 13 to 14. Now, keeping that in mind, remember that most adults don't pick their field of study or career until ages 18 to 25. So in other words, a scientist will not start serious study of science until they have already settled on their worldview. 
And so now if you look at that and say, well, if you, you settle your worldview 13, 14, then you pick your career path rather than saying science causes you to enter into unbelief. It would be more that unbelief causes you to enter into science. And uh, what it what it would suggest to me is that they are looking for some explanatory system, some system of belief that will help them make sense of the world. And science is very happy to offer that. And it's not mutually exclusive because those who are Christians when they go into science remain Christians throughout their tenure as scientists. And there are countless examples of that. Uh, and so scientifically speaking, we would have to say that the people who do not have a system of faith gravitate towards science. Now, this actually reinforces what the scripture teaches us. In Proverbs 22.6, many of you will know, train a child in the way that they should go, and even when he is old, he will not deport, depart from it. And it should reinforce for us the importance of our children's and youth ministries. Now, there's two things you should take away from this. One, there's absolutely nothing wrong with Christians going into science. In fact, we probably need more Christians going into science. We don't need Christians shying away from it. And two, uh, that you play a crucial role in the development of your child's faith life. Uh, That shouldn't be a surprise to anyone, but uh, sometimes it catches people off guard. It's also the importance of our children and youth ministries because we're trying to reach those people in that age group that are still settling their worldview that they'll be stuck in for the next 60, 70 years in most cases. We're trying to reach them while they are young. And so if you have an interest in that, I'd be uh, happy to point you in the direction of Jennifer Cronk, who has spots this summer for you to get involved with children's ministry. And so, thank you. Good segue. Um, question, so, so, does studying science cause you to lose your faith? No. Um, so, isn't that simple? Now, Here's the real question of the day. Question three, how do we read the Bible in light of modern science? So question one, is scientific doubt a bad thing? No. In most cases, it's a good thing. Uh, Does studying science cause you to lose your faith? Also, no. And in fact, we probably need more Christians who are committed to that path. And then question three, how do we read the Bible in light of science? And I'm going to, I'm going to debunk a myth for you here. Have you ever been in a Bible study? where you go verse by verse through a book of the Bible and the leader keeps asking everyone to reflect, what does this passage mean to you? And this tends to go on until they hit a confusing passage or one that they don't like the plain meaning of. And then, and only then, it is time to pull out the study Bible or the commentary to understand that 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 verse in its original context. And the lesson here is that all passages of Scripture require context, not just confusing or difficult ones. Now, that's that's a hard thing for me to try to communicate to people, especially I'm not fun to do Bible studies with, um, because I want to remind everyone that uh, it's not only when a verse doesn't make sense that the context matters. The context matters for every single verse that you read. And so many people will like to... Uh, uh, the language that I kept reading was that people prefer to do a plain reading of the text, which I assume means exactly what I just described. They want to read it and understand it on its plainest level without context, unless there's something confusing, in which case we'll then look up the context. So many people appeal to a plain reading of Genesis chapter 1 
and insists that a day means a literal 24-hour day, and anyone who says otherwise is caving to scientific pressure from the scientific community. Now, I'm not condemning anyone who holds that belief, but I'm just going to say, let's let's just poke at that a little bit more here, because it was St. Augustine, who was born 354 AD, who pointed out that a day couldn't possibly, in Genesis chapter 1, mean a literal 24-hour day, since the concepts of days, seasons, and years wasn't created until verse 14, otherwise known as the fourth day. So Saint Ag- And St. Augustine didn't have anyone around him uh, espousing evolution and trying to teach him about an older earth than what the Bible taught. He was saying, no, the plain reading of the text is that, in fact, if you read verse 14, which I happen to have with me, And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from night and let them be signs for the seasons for days and years. And that was the fourth day. So St. Augustine was the one who said, now, you can't be talking about literal 24-hour days if the literal 24-hour day doesn't come in until the fourth day. What were those first three days? And... Then you wonder, you know, the original question was about the differences between Genesis 1 and 2. They are uh, different. Some some even question that the sequence might not match. Uh, and I would point you to uh, a couple other places in Scripture where we have multiple accounts of the same story. In fact, we're going to go through this summer, First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Um, and then you go to Chronicles later, and it's telling the same story, but from uh, another vantage point. And so when you read Genesis 1 and 2, it's actually really similar to reading Judges chapter 4 and Judges chapter 5. Now, how many of you are in the Gospel Project or have been in the Gospel Project sometime in the last nine months? Okay, so Judges chapter 4 tells a story, and then Judges chapter 5 is a poetic song about the story of Genesis chapter 4. And that actually happens in Exodus as well. There are back-to-back chapters where the same thing is told from different vantage points because they're addressing it in different ways. There's different uh, language that's being employed there. And there's this tension between literal and poetic language. And here's the thing about the literal poetic language blend is that it's not always a clean distinction. Sometimes they're side-by-side. Sometimes they go, uh, they're woven together. Even in modern vernacular... Now, how many people watched the news this morning? No one? Okay, got a couple. Um, I didn't, but uh, I was just showing you that you would raise your hand. Um, now, when you check the morning news or you check your weather app, every single day it will tell you what time the sunrise is. Now, does anybody know what time the sunrise is today? Roughly, it's like 6.07 a.m. Now, what you could have said to me is, you idiot, don't you know the sun doesn't move? Now, that's what we mean. There's, see the language there? The sun rise and the sun set. But we settled this with Galileo a few hundred years ago, that actually the earth is what's moving and the sun is stationary, yet we use uh, a simplified language to describe something from our perspective, from our vantage point, that really answers pragmatically the question that we're Looking after, and so when you look at passages in Scripture, not just these, but uh, in Genesis one and two, since that was my specific question that someone asked, and you think of the original context, you think of the author setting out to answer questions. Was he trying to give them a scientific textbook answering uh, 
when and how the earth was created, or was he trying to say what and who? Now, those questions aren't all mutually exclusive. You might say he's trying to answer all four of those, or he's trying to answer only one or only two. Um, but I would just ask you to consider when this was originally written. Now, there are a couple different theories, and so some people would say this is written by tradition. Church tradition says it's written by Moses, which means it's written in the desert as the people were wandering for 40 years. Some people would say it's written much later in Babylonian captivity. And either way, you've got someone giving the word of God to the people of God when they're under duress and hardship, if they're wandering through the desert, are they wandering through the desert thinking, if only we knew the scientific origin of the universe while they're begging for water and bread, which we covered earlier this year on a daily basis, they're worried about their provisions. Are they trying to get to the deeper scientific questions of life or are they looking to see if God is both powerful enough to deliver them and good enough to do so? Now, Genesis 1 and 2 certainly speak to whether God is all-powerful over his creation and whether he is good toward his creation. And if those are the questions they were looking to have answered, they are most assuredly answered in that text. And uh, the what and the what and or the when and how questions may or may not be answered there. You can, uh, as Christians and especially as a church, we feel like we can disagree on that. You're welcome to worship here. We worship Jesus. We don't draw lines in the pews or in the sanctuary based on how old you think the earth is or how literally you take uh, the text of Genesis 1. And by the way, if I were to use the word literal, uh, what I mean is getting after the author's intent, not the plainest possible reading of the text. And so... Uh, if we want to take the text literally, we should also take it seriously, which means listening to the author uh, as they are trying to answer questions. And so all this to say, we need not speak of science in the Bible as if we must always choose one or the other. Sometimes, sometimes we learn things from science that help us understand what's going on in the scripture. And sometimes we learn things in the Bible that science can't possibly answer. And for the most part, they're a completely different set of questions that they're trying to answer. And we can let each one speak to its area for the most part. Now, the other thing I want to point out here is that we keep talking about science in this way that popular articles from uh, everything from the New Yorker, New York Times, popular science. Uh, I see science referred to in such a way as if it's an abstract noun. As if it's this, uh, or as if it's not an abstract noun, which it is. And for those of you who aren't grammar junkies, science is not a person. Science does not have opinions. Science does not have positions. Scientists have opinions. Scientists have positions. And scientists are varied in their opinions on any number of topics. And so you can't speak of science as being this force that is equal and opposite to the Bible. Science is a process. Science is a data gathering mechanism, and it is what we do with it that uh, arrives at scientific position. So I just want to say that as we go on. And so here's the thing for Christians, though, is when the Bible speaks, it is authoritative in Christian life. But many times there are areas where the Bible does not clearly speak on a topic. For example, this is what we call, by the way, the doctrine of common grace. God does not expect us to turn to the book of Leviticus when our car engine isn't working. You go to a mechanic. 
right? Trust me, I've tried. And Leviticus actually makes more sense to me than a car engine. But it doesn't help me repair my car engine. God has given us science and he's given us mechanics so that we can do mechanical things with that. And the Bible just simply does not speak to how we uh, correct a misfiring piston. And so at the end of the day, we can celebrate God's gift of science. We can use it in all the ways that is intended to be a blessing from God. And at the same time, we realize that it can't answer some of our most important questions. For example, science cannot tell us what love is, nor through scientific process could you figure out whether or not you are loved. Science cannot explain uh, beauty as we understand it on its deepest level. It can describe it, but it can't explain it. And while it can give us many facts, science cannot construct systems of ultimate truth. We don't find ultimate senses of meaning and truth in scientific data. Data has to be assembled into some sort of narrative that provides us truth. And science, just through its simple processes, cannot do that. Now, scientists frequently will offer you some sort of narrative like that, but science itself cannot. And so here's the thought we want to leave you with. If there is a God, which most of us here agree, why in the world would he be afraid of our questions and our doubts? He never asks for a blind leap of faith, and that's certainly not how we see Jesus respond to Thomas. And if we use that text of Jesus and Thomas, you just... You see the grace of Jesus and you see him not shaming, uh, not belittling Thomas for his behavior. And so here's the, here's your application for the day is what do you do with your doubts? Now, I'm not speaking just to people who are on the outside of Christianity looking in because I'm very well aware that many of all of us have doubts about something and doubts, remember, are how we grow. And so the question is, what do you do with your doubts? Not whether or not you have doubts, but what do you do with them when they're there? And so I'm going to give you three approaches, and I only recommend one of them. The first approach is you can suppress your doubts. And you can suppress them until they consume you. If you have doubts about your faith, they're unlikely to just go away on their own if you don't seek out the truth. Instead, what they will do is they will eat away, they will gnaw away at you, and they will feel bigger and bigger as time goes on. So suppressing and ignoring your doubts is not the right approach. The second approach is to use your doubts as an excuse for inaction. Thinking that if we have doubts, we can't worship God, we can't attend church, and we can't serve one another is crazy. It's crazy to say that if we have any doubts, we can't participate in that. And and, uh, the famous English... A Catholic writer from the 20th century, G.K. Chesterton, said this. He said, the purpose of an open mouth, uh, the purpose of an open mind is the same as the purpose of an open mouth. It is meant to close on something. And so he said, if you have all of these questions, you can't just say, well, I'm going to be content to just have questions and just be uh, open-minded. In that sense, he says, well, no, your mind is actually craving to close in on something. And uh, there's a a story from a pastor that I listened to, and I love, I love this little uh, parable, so I'm going to tell it now. But it's, uh, he's telling the story about uh, his, his uh, middle son, which are notoriously difficult. I know I am one. And he said on Tuesday, he went to his son and said, Son, I want you to set aside your calendar on Saturday morning. We're going to go out. We're going to clean the garage. 
And his son said, yeah, okay. And then he reminded him on Wednesday and on Thursday, he was being very fair, making sure his son was well aware of the plan and the time and nine to noon. And so at 8.55 on Saturday, he said, okay, are you ready to go clean the garage? And the son said, well, dad, I think, I don't know if we really need to clean the garage. I'm not sure that needs to be done. Can we talk about that? And the father said, now, son, that is a very fair question. It deserves an answer. And I'm going to answer that. And we can talk about it as long as you want as soon as we finish cleaning the garage. <laughs> and so at noon, they finished cleaning the garage, and he said, uh, okay, do you want to talk about why we needed to clean the garage? And he said, no, I'm good. Um, and the point is, sometimes questions, sometimes doubts, are just constructed to delay duty. We use them to delay what we know we should be doing, what we feel on some level is true, what we know is right, but we don't like what we have to go do because of it. And so we come up with these questions. And so that's the second approach, which, by the way, I also would not recommend. So approach one, you suppress them. Approach two, you just create this cognitive dissonance where you're totally fine with them. Or approach three, which, by the way, is the one I'm going to recommend, is you enter into your doubts with the goal to test and learn the truth. Now, God encourages us to do this in Scripture. He says, taste and see that I am good. Enter into worship, enter into reading the scripture, enter into following Jesus and see that it is good. Test it and see, enter into your doubts, ask those questions and you will. Now it's interesting in the apostle Paul's life, he had all of these lists of doubts and questions about, uh, about the Christian faith. And he had just has this sudden conversion. Jesus shows up to him. He's blinded. He falls off his horse. And now he believes now that all of his questions get answered. All of his doubts resolved. No. But he, he started using his brain in the opposite direction. Instead of questioning Christianity, he used his critical thinking to question his doubts. And when he stopped questioning Christianity and started questioning his own doubts, he realized that, uh, oh, I've been spending all this energy questioning this system when I should have been questioning the system I was questioning it from. Now, that's a quite complicated proposition, but he spent three years studying the scriptures over again after converting to Christianity, and then he becomes the Apostle Paul as we know him. And so God encourages us to enter into those doubts, and so maybe today you are in that position where you need to take that step to trust God with your doubts. Whether you're not quite a Christian and you feel like, you know, I'm interested in this, I kind of like Jesus, but I'm not sure Jesus is who he says he is, which, by the way, is the bottom line for Paul and for all of the other New Testament converts, not these questions of Genesis 1 and 2 and all these other things, but is Jesus who he says he is? If you read the accounts of the gospel and you're persuaded that Jesus is who he says he is and you start following after Jesus, all of these other things fall into place. Not effortlessly, not without doubt, not without wrestling, not without struggle, but they do fall into place. And so the bottom question is, Jesus, who he says he is. And so while science can treat cancer and it can predict the weather, it cannot explain to you uh, what your sins are. It cannot forgive you your sins only uh, against God and against your neighbor. Only Jesus can do that. And so I would ask you this morning to reflect on that. Have you been using... Have you been suppressing your doubts? And if so, where do you need to go in order to resolve them, in order to seek out truth? Have you been using your doubts to put off doing what you know you ought to do? Or is it time for you to now enter into those doubts, enter in along with your community of believers here at church, and explore those on a deeper level? Would you please join me in prayer?